doing it. And so we really want to be adaptable as God moves. Uh, and we're also committed to this vision that we got a couple of years ago. And I don't mean like vision, but I mean a, a vision God did kind of give to us of we want to be involved with 25 churches by the year 2025, praying to see our community 25% churched. And so for us, I mean, that's our passion is to see many people come to Christ, not just our church, but other churches. And we think church planting is going to be part of that. Uh, but at this point in time, we're going to bring them back. So the first question you're going to ask is, where are they going to sit? <laughs> we're going to be instituting a lap policy. <laughs> so, right. Anybody that comes with a group of three or more, you have to start laps. So um, it's going to get awkward. No, actually, this is part of the opportunity that, that God has given us. This unit next door here is still vacant. Um, and the cost to rent that and the cost of what it's spending in Minden right now is about a wash if we take over that unit. So that's what we're looking at doing. It's not finalized yet, but we're looking at taking that unit over moving kids to there, taking this wall down and expanding so we will have a lot more room. So be praying as we move toward that. Uh, if you're in here, don't text anybody in Minden right now because they're going to hear it in about an hour. So, so it'll be like, hey, great news. They'll be like, what? So um, don't, don't spoil that for them. Let me pray and we can get in. See, somebody's texting right now. <laughs> Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you um, that our life is hidden with you that if we belong to you, we are united with you, and the Father views us as righteous because of you. Uh, we thank you that we have hope in eternity, uh, that our job here is really to know you, to follow you, to love you, and the rest of it, you'll kind of work out. And so, God, we, we thank you for the opportunities we've had in Minden. We thank you for the growth that we've seen because of that step in faith and the growth in numbers, but really also the growth in people in you. Um, and we pray for our next steps, that we would follow you, that we wouldn't go our own way, that we wouldn't have our own ambitions, that we would follow you. And we ask that many, many would come to know you in this church and in the other churches in town. God, we, uh, we have a lot of churches and we don't really have a lot of Christians in our area. It's a, it's a, a difficult place for churches to thrive. And so I ask that the other churches and ours would thrive in you, that you would bring many to know you, that there would be just a an amazing thing over the next 10 years of growth for you, of victory over temptations, victory over addictions, uh, healing in families and marriages, God, and that you would get all the glory. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you were going to define yourself, you know, we had you hop up here and we're like, tell, tell us about you in two minutes. You know, what, how would you describe yourself? What would be those things that you identify about you. You know, if I was going to identify myself, I would tell you, you know, if we were going to get really personal, I would just tell you about some of my strengths, some of my weaknesses. I'm a Bronco fan. That kind of... Weakness. That's not a weakness. No. My goodness. God is a Bronco fan. So, I, I mean, it's in here. So, anyway. But, but, you know, how would you define yourself? Would you define yourself maybe by some of your sin? Some of those things that, yeah, you've come to know Christ, but there's still this sin that's grabbing you and you can't get rid of. And you're like, that, I identify with that. Maybe you were in the military. Maybe you still are. And you identify yourself as whatever that is. Maybe you're a police officer, uh, a construction worker, a teacher, and you find your identity in those things. How would you identify yourself? A.W. Tozer uh, wrote in The Knowledge of the Holy, which is back there if you want a copy of it. He said, 
when you think, what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So think about that. The most important thing about you isn't some of these other external things that we might use to identify ourselves. Is what comes to mind when you think about God. So I'll ask that. And specifically, what comes to mind when you think about Jesus? You know, we're singing these songs about Jesus. We come here, we get to talk about Jesus. But what comes to mind? What do you think about? Do you think about his mercy, his grace? Do you think about judgment? Is there fear there? Do you think of Jesus as this uh, blonde hair, blue-eyed picture that we often have uh, and, and this kind of religious saint-like figure? Do you think of Jesus as your genie in a bottle? You know, the, the person you go to when you need help? It's one of those things, maybe you ever heard Jim Gaffigan talk about when you lose a kid in, in the, the, the mall and all of a sudden the atheist becomes religious and starts praying, God, if you just give me the kid, I promise I'll... Oh, there he is, never mind. Call you later when I get cancer. Um, is that your Jesus? You, you just call him up like that college student that needs money and only calls when they need money. Is that Jesus to you? What comes to mind when you think of Jesus? As I was preparing this, the question came to my mind as I wrote, does Jesus exist for you or do you exist for Jesus? In your mind, do you want to do what you want and then add Jesus in and have him help you? Or are you about helping him and serving him? Who serves who? We're going to be in John. So grab a Bible, if you would. Turn to John if you want to use your phone. That's cool, too. But we're going to be in John 1. And this week, we're starting a, a four-week series in the Gospel of John. This is the last Gospel that we're doing this. We, we've done a survey of Matthew, a survey of Mark, a survey of Luke. And now we're doing a, a survey of John, which is fun because we get a, an overarching view of the book, of why it was written, of what makes it different. Now, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke... Those are the first three books in the New Testament. Those are called the synoptic gospels because they're a lot alike. Uh, they have their own bents, but their stories are similar. Their purpose is similar. The book of John is actually quite a bit different. Uh, so it's not one of the synoptics. It's kind of its own thing because although it is a narrative, John is very, very theological. John was one of Jesus' best friends. John will refer to himself in this book as the one whom Jesus loved. At the Last Supper, when there's the picture of all the disciples around the table, John is actually leaning on Jesus' bosom, it says, so he's leaning against him. They had a very close relationship. John was probably one of the youngest of the disciples. When he wrote this book, it's possible he's one of the only disciples left. And he's writing to second, third generation Christians and second, third people, not Christians yet, trying to clarify who Jesus is. Because fairly quickly within the church, there started to become these heresies coming in as to who Jesus is. As in, he's not God, he's not divine, he's just a prophet from the Old Testament. These things came in, and so John wanted to clarify that. And John gives us his thesis in John 20, 31. I think it'll be on the screen. You don't have to turn there. But the point of his book, he writes this. He says, but these are written... So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of the book. Leave that up for just a minute, Noah. Here, here's his purpose for writing. So as we study, as we look at this, this is always underneath. Why did John write this? He wrote that we might believe the right things about Jesus. 
and not just believe that, that, that we may have life in his name. And we're going to see some of that even in this passage in John 1. But that is why he wrote that we would have correct thinking about Jesus. You know, in our day and age, in our society, we, we're very pluralistic and, and very relativistic, meaning you can believe whatever you want and I can believe. And so you can fabricate the Jesus that you like and I can fabricate the Jesus that I like that fits into my mold. But as you read scripture, we don't get to do that. Jesus is who he is and we want to worship him in spirit and in truth. So in spirit from our heart, but also in truth in aligning with who he actually is. So John chapter 1, we're going to learn a lot about who Jesus is. Let's read John 1, 1 through 3. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So we're going to look at the first 18 verses here. But if we were really going to go in depth, this would probably be a two-month study just on these 18 verses. So if you need something to study this week, John 1, 1 through 18, you can grab a few verses each day and meditate on these and study and look it up and, and learn about him. But we're going to skip through this. But it, it talks about the word. John refers to the word, that is the Greek word logos or logos. And uh, not to spoil it, but if you look down, the word is Jesus. It says in verse 14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then you look down to verse 17, it says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So it takes John a little while to say, I'm talking about Jesus here, because he's talking about the Word, which is kind of neat. If you do this study, not thinking about Jesus yet, thinking about what the Word is, you can maybe get past some of those presuppositions that you have that aren't biblical. But here we want to just give it away. The Word is Jesus. So look back at those first verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What do we learn about the Word right there? Does this sound similar to any other book in the Bible? Any other book begin with in the beginning? <laughs> yeah, the very first one. And if you flip to Genesis 1, 1, it's easy to find. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it goes through the creation account. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. That is a very intentional parallel that John is referring to Jesus right there in Genesis 1 as the Creator, as eternal, as God. But look, it, He is the Word. That Word, Word, it's kind of difficult to talk about. That Word is, ha, has serious meaning in the Greek circles and in the Jewish circles. Uh, in Judaism, they, they knew the Word as God's self-revelation. So whenever the prophets came, they came and gave the word of God. So it was God's message that he was sending and also his power. So that's how the Jews saw the word, or the word of God. The Greeks understood logos or word as uh, basically the divine revelation. So they had a similar idea of the word. And that's why John uses it. He wants to reach both of these audiences using this word, word. So what do we see here? In the beginning was the Word. 
If you're a note taker, this is your first note. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is eternal. Because we see here his creative attributes, that he was the one in the beginning creating, which means he is eternal. Have you ever thought about eternity? This was the biggest thing I struggled with as a kid, growing up in the church, believing in God. For some reason, it always happened at night when I was camping. Or I'd look at the stars and think, eternity. I'd look at the stars and think, those are permanent, but yet they're not. And God made those, and God existed before those. So when there was just darkness and nothingness, there was God. I mean, good luck wrapping your brain around that concept. Because for us, everything we see or know has been created. You know, the, the Newton's law of thermodynamics, if you study those, goes all the way back to the beginning of uh, Newton's first law. That something stays in its resting state or state of motion unless something works upon it. So basically, that one law of thermodynamics would point to the very beginning and go, at the beginning, when something went bang, something actually made it go bang. So maybe we were created big bang. It might have been loud when God said, let there be light. But there was something had to, to get the ball rolling. I mean, you just think of it, and in evolution circles, and, and you talk to them, it always gets back to that first, you know, how did it begin? And they always, if they're honest, they have to go, I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, some wrote it in children's books, and I've read it, that in the, there was nothing, and then the nothing exploded, and there was something, and the something started becoming... Well, that makes absolutely no sense. It actually makes more sense that God is eternal. Again, I can't grasp that, but God is eternal and God is personal. And guess what? Jesus is eternal. But yet we saw in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, the eternal word at some point took on flesh. So he always was. But at a moment in time, he took on a body and he entered and he became human. This has been something that the church has struggled with wrapping their brain around and describing since the very beginning. But in the Nicene Creed, they said it this way, which I thought was helpful. They said that Jesus is begotten, not made. That was their way of putting that, that he was begotten, not made, as in he always existed but at a point in time, he was begotten by God through the Holy Spirit and Mary. He, he took on flesh. But what else do we see? He's eternal. He's in the beginning. In the beginning, God created. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the creator. He's eternal. He's the creator. Here's another one of those mysteries of looking at God and Jesus, that they are both God, they both created, they are one yet distinct. Again, here's another one of those, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The scripture clearly teaches that God reveals himself in, in three persons that are distinct yet one. Again, good luck wrapping your brain around that one. Uh, this is one of those, as I study and think about it, again, we try and wrap our brain, and aren't you glad you can't wrap your brain around God? I mean, if we could, if we could fully understand him, that, that would mean we would have a box and God would fit in our little box. What's so great is that we can't grasp him. Good, that means he, he should be God. If we could understand him, he's no longer God. He will always be far above us. That's what it says in Isaiah. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. So 
You might not fully understand it, but Jesus is eternal. Jesus is the creator. Now, think of us as creators. We're creative beings. We make things. Why do we make things? If you create something, say a pot out of clay, what do you make it for? Do you make it so that you can worship it? Do you make it so that then you can serve it? No, we make things so that they can serve us. Same way, God as the creator made us, not so he could be our genie in a bottle, he made us to serve him. He made us to worship him. Look at Colossians 1, verses 15 through 16. It says this, He, referring to Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So Jesus created everything, and everything was created for him. Remember, the most important thing about you is what comes to mind when you think about God. So does God exist for you? This is a, a big thing we need to grasp. We exist for him. And then there's something else we notice in these passages. Jesus is God. This is very, very clear in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, here's, here's a great way where you can make a distinction between biblical faith, biblical Christianity, and a cult, and a heresy. Who is Jesus? And many will deny Jesus' deity. Many, they say they believe the Bible, but they've actually changed this. Jehovah's Witness is one of them. They've changed this, this first verse to say, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. That's not in the Greek. And we have thousands of manuscripts to compare to. They added that. And so here, this, this is key for us as biblical-believing Christians that Jesus is God. Now, some will say he never claimed to be God. Did too. <laughs> John 14, 9. There, there's three more passages from John because this is a great theme in John that Jesus is God. John 14, 9. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. In John 8, 58, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Taking God's personal name of Yahweh and applying it to himself. Then they tried to stone him for that. Then in John 10, 31 to 33, it says, The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. They knew his claim, and they were going to kill him for it. And by the way, Jesus didn't deny that claim. They said, you're making yourself out to be God. He didn't say, no, I'm not. So Jesus clearly claimed to be God. The Jews knew what he was claiming, and were going to kill him for it. Jesus is God. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, does a really good job dealing with Jesus. He talks about Jesus and Jesus' claim to be God. And he says many out there will claim that Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus was a moral teacher. Maybe he was a prophet. He was a good person, but that he wasn't God. And C.S. Lewis sums it up this way. He says Jesus is either Lord or he's a liar or he's a lunatic. I mean, if somebody came walking in these doors saying, hey, I'm God, 
we would probably think they're crazy. So that's what C.S. Lewis is saying. Maybe he was crazy. Maybe he was a liar, meaning he, he deceived on purpose. Being straight from the devil and evil, he came making himself out to be God. Or he's Lord, meaning he is God. He is the creator. He is eternal, and he's Lord of all. We, we can't choose. We must accept him as Lord or reject this altogether. We must accept his deity or reject scripture completely. So, Jesus, verse 14, you see, the eternal word became flesh and dwelt among us. It says, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. We call this the incarnation, God taking on human form. Again, I, I'm telling you, there's so much in these verses, it's kind of hard to skip over the top as we are, but he took on flesh. He became a man in Philippians. You can read about what's called the kenosis of, of God becoming flesh, of Jesus not considering equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He didn't stop being God, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a human, of a bond slave. So he's still 100% God, but yet he's also 100% man. 100% plus 100% equals 100%. Again, he's so much greater. I, I mean, over and over, we can't wrap our mind around him. But then here's our question. Why did he come? Why did God become come flesh? Why did he come as a man? Well, the, the title of our series is God Loves You. That's another great theme through John, God Loves You. And if we could sum up why Jesus came, because God loves you. Look at verses 4 through 9. It says, In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all may believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. You notice a couple words repeated? Light and life. Light and life. What is light for? Seeing. Yeah, that's right. Light reveals what is not visible in the darkness. In a nice dark room, flip on a light, you can all of a sudden see. Jesus is the light. I mean, we saw last week on Easter Sunday, looking at the idea that all of us internally know there's a God and that he made us that we would seek and possibly find him, although he's not far from any one of us. Jesus is the light that flips on the switch to go, here's what God is like. Here's my plan for you. Jesus is the light. Jesus reveals the truth about God and is the giver of real life. This word life is not bios, you know, biological life. Uh, and that word is often used in Greek, bios. This is the word zoe. And I love this word because when Jesus talks about the life that he gives, it's not this boring, religious, just life. You know, again, maybe I'm tainted some by being in the church my whole life. But a lot of times, I mean, I remember sitting in the pew and counting the ceiling tiles. Like, how many of you know how many tiles there are? Some of you probably do. Uh, but, but that's what I would do in church a lot of times. And I just thought of it as, as boring. 
You know, I wasn't excited to go on Sunday. I really wasn't excited until I was 16 and I really fell in love with Jesus. And I got the idea that, that it's not just going to church. It's not just being good because just being good isn't a lot of fun, uh, you, you know, but life with Jesus is a lot of fun. Life with Jesus, this adventure that he puts us on is life, not just, you know, now be good and someday you'll die and then it gets really good. He says, no, he is the, he is the light and the life, the zoe. So that word zoe, it, it means spiritual life. It means eternal life, but it carries more connotation. It means, you know, I painted this picture before, but, but the day where you're outside and, and the sun is shining and the kids are in the pool, you know, it's just one of those days where you're like, this is the life. You know, you got a nice lemonade or an Arnold Palmer with the tea in it. It's like, this is the life. That, that's what Jesus came. He is the light and the life to give that life of this is what we're made for. I mean, I was thinking these songs we were singing at the beginning, you know, these songs of worship. I can't remember the words right now, but I couldn't even sing all the words. I just wanted to listen to you all sing them and Paul sing them, that this is who our God is. This is life, this adventure you know, I think about even the decisions we're making as a church, you know, to go to Minden. That was a step of faith and that was hard and, and, but it was exciting. It was an adventure. And now coming back, well, there's another adventure. Well, God has called us to be on this adventure with him. He is the giver of life. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I mean, he wants to pour out his blessings to us. Now, don't get confused. This isn't the health and wealth gospel. This isn't he wants to make you rich and make you healthy. I mean, if that was the case, nobody would ever die, right? Instead, the life that he's talking about is one not dependent on circumstances. It's not always physical, although he is the healer. He does provide things for us. But it's the life that no matter what, in your heart, you're good with him. He's not your genie in a bottle. Rather, he changes our hearts to align with him. And we see here why he came. Look down at verse 18. He is the light. He is the life. In verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, this is Jesus, He has made Him known. Jesus came in order to make God known. That's why He came. Remember, He said, If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. So this is one of the great questions in life. What is God like? Well, if you want to know God, what God is like, look at Jesus. God is exactly like Jesus. At the beginning, when it said that, that the word was with God, that could be interpreted face to face, meaning on equal standing, meaning Jesus and the Father, Jesus and God are on equal standing, face to face. Jesus reveals the Father. That's what it means that He is the light. He reveals God, but then also God's plan for us so what's our part in response? Well, let's get back. Look at verse 11. He came to his own. That means Jesus. He came to the Jews in the area of Jerusalem, Judea, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So what's our part in this? All who receive him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We can become his children by receiving and believing. Those are the two words, receive and believe. So the question is, have you received Jesus into your life? Receive, you know, a lot of times in the church, we've watered this down and said salvation is just about believing certain things about God. 
But here John phrases this very well, that you would receive Jesus into your life, as in he comes in and, and it makes into one. You know, I, I was trying to think of a good picture or illustration. I couldn't think of something like jello and other jello, and you mix it together and it becomes one. But it, that's it. You know, this relationship with Jesus is more like a marriage than any other human relationship. It's, it's a melding into one that we would receive him, that he would come into our life and take over our life. That's what that word receive means, that we make him Lord and believe. And believe what? It says believe in his name, meaning believe in all that he has revealed about himself, not just the He's not the buffet Jesus where we, we pick what we want, but we receive everything that, that he has revealed, meaning we're saying yes to him even before we know what that is. Our faith is in Jesus as Lord, we believe, and then as he reveals more, we're quick to say yes. We're quick to believe because we believe we receive his name, his whole person. But again, this is all because of his will, verse 13. He gave us the right. If we believe and receive, we're given the right to become children of God. That's pretty awesome. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Meaning this is God's will for you. God's plan for you is that you would learn, as John said, study the book of John, learn what Jesus is like, believe it, and then receive him into your life. Believe and receive. We have this temptation. I have this temptation, you know, as, as a pastor. And I, and I study a passage and I get up to preach and so often I study it and I just go, man, God is so big and so great. What are you going to do with it? You know, I'm very application oriented. It's just who I am. You know, Callie actually, she's not here so I can talk about her. Uh, Callie the other day said, all right, I have a confession. Uh, the past couple of days, I haven't wanted to share things with you because the other times I did share some stuff about this and about this you just got riled up and wanted to fix it? I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> this is a problem. Here's the solution. You give me the problem, I give you the solution. That's, you know, she's like, well, maybe we could just talk about it. Uh, maybe I can just share some things and you don't have to go confront that person and that, you know, we can just, you know. I'm made that way. And so a lot of times as I'm preparing to teach, it's like, okay, what, what should we do with this? And here's the big thing with this passage. The big thing that we do with this is we believe in Jesus. And that sounds Sunday school. That sounds juvenile, but yet it's not. We never move past this. The, I mean, the cross of Christ and what he did for us and who he is, it it's, seems elementary. I mean, just going through John 1, 1, how often do we talk about that? But yet it's not. Our life is built on him. And there's nothing greater than knowing who he is, believing in him, giving your life to him. And we never move past the cross. We never move past the basics of who Jesus is. And so that is our great application. Do we worship him for who he is? Who is Jesus to you? I asked that at the beginning. Is he this great God who is up there who you just want to pour your life out to? Or is he your genie in a bottle? You, you know, you call him when you need something. You give to him because you're supposed to, or is all your joy in him? I want to read you uh, an excerpt that uh, J. Hudson Taylor wrote. I thought this is really helpful to finish up. Because we can often go to the to-do. You know, how do we bear fruit? How do we accomplish things? And he says this, How then shall a Christian bear fruit? 
by efforts and struggles to obtain that which is freely given, by meditations on watchfulness, on prayer, on action, on temptation, and on dangers? No. There must be a full concentration of the thoughts and affections on Christ, a complete surrender of the whole being to Him, a constant looking to Him for grace. Christians in whom these dispositions are once firmly fixed go on calmly as the infant born in the arms of its mother. Christ reminds them of every duty in its time and place, reproves them for every error, counsels them in every difficulty, excites them to every needful activity. In spiritual as in temporal matters, they take no thought for the morrow, for they know that Christ will be as accessible tomorrow as today and that time imposes no barrier on His love. Their hope and trust rest solely on what He is willing and able to do for them, on nothing that they suppose themselves able and willing to do for Him. Their talisman for every temptation and sorrow is their oft-repeated childlike surrender of their whole being to Him. I thought that is beautiful. How do we respond? By surrendering our whole being to this Jesus who is God. Let's continue to worship. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. I often thank you that, that you revealed yourself to us so clearly. That here in Scripture we get to know you so clearly, but yet you're also still mysterious. You're also still so great we can't wrap our minds around you. Lord Jesus, I, I do pray this morning that if anybody in here has not received you into their life, has not surrendered to you, that today would be the day of salvation. God, I pray for the rest of us that today would be a day of reminding who you are, Jesus, this great God who also loves us so much you died for us. This great God, you are so far above and beyond and you don't need us, but yet you choose to love us. This is so beautiful. And that our life isn't about what we do for you, but it's about a fellowship with you, a relationship with you, and then the doing results. That you're a God of grace and mercy, not a God who's going to judge and condemn us if we've placed our faith in you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.